0: Chapter seven of From MUD to Mufti by Bruce Bairn's Father This Librivox recording is in the public domain CHAPTER seven Those Field Days Who's Won? A Keen Division It didn't take me long to size up this new division. It was just the most hard working and keen division that ever was, but at that time I think the whole of Salisbury Plain was crammed with such divisions. It was composed almost entirely of men from the North Country and was just bursting to reach the last stage of proficiency and go out to France or anywhere to have a smack at the Boche. When I arrived, the situation was that at any time the order for the exodus might come. Training and final equipment was going on with relentless vigor. The work of the divisional and brigade staffs was enormous. Enthusiasm ran like an electric current through the entire concern. My little part consisted of getting hold of all the machine gun sections of the division with their officers and imparting practical tips for Prussian puncturing. I took a group out daily into the country roundabout and reconstructed actual front-line scenes and episodes, coupling it all with as good word pictures and advice as I could command. I took about fourteen men out at a time. We marched off into a new bit of country daily and there spread ourselves for perfecting the gentle art of machine gunning. I arranged attacks, of all descriptions, on all sorts of places, and at the end of an arduous morning sat in the middle of a perspiring group correcting faults and illustrating them with examples from my knowledge of the front. The rest of the division was almost invariably out on a field day or a route march. The machine gun department nearly always worked on its own. Occasionally there came a great day of combined work in the shape of a full-blown field day in which all the component parts of the division took part. These days, though very hard and tiresome, are generally tinged with humor, humor arising out of pain, generally. This division I was with was great on field days. About a week before one came off, all the crowned heads of the division were given what is known as the general idea. This consists of a group of intricate documents laying out concisely what sort of a field day the divisional general is going to have, say, next Tuesday. Then comes the special idea. And finally out of all this the fact dawns on the mere regimental officer that on Tuesday next there is to be a field day when a brown force will be opposed to a white force, which is the invariable army method for distinguishing the two sides for the battle. For a week the staff officers have worked themselves to red-tab shadows preparing for this monster game of hide-and-seek. The General's right-hand man, in Army parlance, the G.S.O. 1, performs miracles of work on these occasions. At last Tuesday arrives. It is pouring with rain generally, but the plan is far too vast to be interfered with by any considerations of weather. The Brown force has been set in motion against the White force, and now no power on Earth except the General, being suddenly superseded can possibly avert the ultimate collision of these two ponderous pieces of human mechanism that have now been set in motion. At about 6 a.m., the brown and white forces, numbering thousands each, covered with equipment and ammunition exuding profanity and determination, stagger forth into the surrounding morass and disappear into the neighboring country. The two forces, of course, take different paths immediately. They will ultimately meet in a fearful mock collision, arranged by the G S O one in about three hours' time. The great charm about these onslaughts is that from the day on you never really know who has won the battle. There being no convincing argument, such as real barrages and devastating machine-gun fire, it is always possible for each side ever afterwards to prove to its own satisfaction that it won hands down. A whole battalion, with enormous self-satisfaction and consciousness of undisputed strength, storms a hill and refuses staunchly to believe, though repeatedly told, that a solitary machine gun concealed in a hedge has entirely murdered them, in theory, whilst they were approaching the hill. In actual war, one is apt to get painful and convincing arguments of an exceedingly practical nature. At home, rehearsing, it's left to words and superior judgment. I have often thought that if only we were Spartan enough, what a valuable training a real scrap would be. There is nothing in the world illustrates better what a mistake it is to march in fours down an inflated road than a couple of real live machine guns at the end of it. The appearance of a red-tabbed military apostle, in an apoplectic temper at the end of the said road announcing in uncomplimentary terms that the whole lot of you would have been simply wiped out, leaves one cold. But anyway, one learns a lot on these field days. They are great training and endurance. Nothing could keep one in better training. My only comment is that they rarely, if ever, are the least bit like the real thing in the way of an attack. It is quite impossible to make them so. Other wars may have been a bit on the lines of a field day, but not this one. War wouldn't be half so bad if it was like a field day with all its marching and outflanking movements, etc. There is some sporting adventure, and go about that. But the Germans have, wisely for themselves, taken to mud and mechanics, and have thereby spoilt the true sporting idea of a battle. My division always threw themselves with wholehearted enthusiastic vigor into these field days. These were days before the great battle of the Somme. How little those fine chaps knew of the kind of thing the real field days would shortly be. I used to try, by means of sketches and word pictures, to give my machine gunners as clear a vision as possible of the front and what it means. But it's very, very hard, nearly impossible, to convey the correct idea. Nobody who has not actually been to the front can know what it is really like, and by going to the front I don't mean going to some headquarters and being taken to as near as it's safe and then being given a pair of field glasses. A visitor to the front knows he can leave when he has seen it. A soldier knows that he can't and isn't going to. There's the difference. Being accidentally caught in a bit of shelling whilst visiting the front doesn't give you the idea either. You are buoyed up by the knowledge that a car is waiting back there near the crossroads to whisk you off to security and a good lunch. You want to be in a morning shelling, and then, having escaped when it stops, realize that you'll probably get the same thing again tomorrow morning. I have heard of people saying, when shown Ypres, that they thought it would be much worse. If they will come to me, I will soon tell them how to get that opinion altered. This division, of course, didn't know and couldn't appreciate it, but what they did know was that they were ready for anything and would go through anything. They fully acted up to it, too, in their splendid performance on the psalm a few months later. End of chapter 7 Recording by Philip Gould